Well, thank you, Tim, for leading us in time of prayer. We are continuing our sermon series in Colossians this morning, and uh, today's sermon is entitled, The Resurrected Life. Um, Our current age is an age of unprecedented moral sensitivity towards others. Uh, Some people would say, you know, well, I guess it's true, right? In many ways, you may look at the current state of the West and culture and think, wow, things are, you know, declining, et cetera, and so forth. In some ways, yes, that is happening. But in other ways, it's actually the opposite. Um, No other time in history have we been so concerned about treatment of others, view of others, acceptance of others, regardless of age, sex, color of skin, or socioeconomic status. No other time in history has human rights been such a concern, rights for all people. No other time in history has sexual abuse been of such a concern in light of the uh, recent Harvey Weinstein scandals and the Me Too movement many of you are familiar with. Um, Many of you know I, I grew up in uh, Georgia, a little town called Noonan. It's about 18 square miles, about 30,000 people. It's kind of a suburb of Atlanta, but we're almost like in the sticks. We're really close. We used to be, but you know. So yesterday was a very interesting day in my little hometown in Noonan. Uh, we have some pictures to show back here. Um, this, uh, uh, the neo-Nazis descended on our little hometown and had their uh, little parade. And um, there they are, you know, right in downtown Noonan. And so uh, the response of the community, uh, they act, but basically there was no, um, you know, nothing got out of control. Last year in Charlottesville, things got really out of control, if you guys remember. This time, uh, people was expecting it to get crazy, but it actually didn't because the people who came in to actually bring up some counter-protest to this uh, far, far, far outnumbered the amount of the neo-Nazis that showed up. And as you see, the, the pictures that follow this is they just cover the whole downtown area with writings like this, right? Noonan Strong was a big thing all over the internet yesterday. Um, so all to say, they so far outnumber the neo-Nazis that there was no clash, there was no fighting or anything. It just kind of dwindled away and everything went away in peace, right? Um, I show this because I want to point this out that... Um, the Christian response to these kind of shenanigans, right? Because these, these people are all over the country and sometimes they pop up and do stuff like this. Um, and thank God yesterday it didn't make, you know, it didn't make national news, but wasn't a Charlottesville, another event, you know, praise Jesus. But the Christian response to such a situation on the surface, right? As we see all these little kind of sayings that were chalked all over the downtown Noonan area. On the surface, the Christian response to this really does not look a whole lot different. Most of the people that were there um, were actually from Noonan that were protesting, were shipped in, right? And so uh, you know, a lot of their stories, they weren't Christians, probably, a lot of them probably weren't. Um, but if the church were to have an official response to something like this, it really would not look a whole lot, it, it, on the surface, a whole lot different. We would be saying very similar kind of things um, that, are, that resemble what we're seeing here. You know, love wins. You know, we believe in equality between all people in this world. Scripturally, you could find verses that really back up this stuff, right? It would completely back it up. Now, this is what I'm arguing. In our age of, of this moral sensitivity, right, to all these things, what is the ultimate difference 
um, it, with our moral response to these things within the church and outside of the church. Um, there's a deeper question we're kind of asking. What is, the, what is the actual essence of Christianity? What makes the Christian message distinctly Christian as we respond to things like this? Um, how, what, what would make the response you know, Christian? So it, I, I'm going to argue this morning as we're going to see the Christian message, um, if, if our understanding of Christianity is just this mere way of morality, a way to you know, live uh, that should shape our actions and therefore should just lead us to loving and caring for other people, then no, the Christian response doesn't look a whole lot different than this, right? It doesn't go much deeper than that. But what I'm going to point out to you this morning in Colossians 3 here is the, 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 the Christian message is actually extremely distinct in its essence, in its message. Some of the surface level things may look similar, but below, right, the foundation of how we would respond to these kind of shenanigans, right? How the church responds is extraordinarily distinct. It is much deeper and much richer than merely saying love wins. And I hope you can see that today. So I'm going to read um, these first few verses here. We're going through Colossians 1 all the way through 17 today. So bear with me. Um, man. Yep, okay. I didn't go in that book. Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the earth, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is also your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Uh, I think I might skip verse 3. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So Paul picks up on this image here that is in Colossians 2.20 a few weeks back. Pastor Eric hit on. It says it, it, uh, just a few verses before in chapter 2. If, you had, if with Christ you died to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, why do you still, you know, we're alive in the world to submit to these different kind of regulations? So Paul is kind of expanding upon this idea of the death a death of the Christian, right? When you become a Christian, immediately there is a death that happens in your life, right? Not physically, of course, that's not what we're talking about, but there is a death that happens in your life. And what happens actually in a broader scheme of things is when you become a Christian, your life becomes wrapped up in union with a very life of Jesus Christ, that his story upon your faith in him becomes, in a way, your story, as if it actually did belong to you. And this is a gracious act of God, as we'll see here. But when Jesus lived, right, he, 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 lived, without, he lived with perfection, he was sinless, and he was speaking the, the message of the kingdom of God coming to earth, he was healing people, raising people from the dead, teaching extraordinary uh, truths about God and his love for people and his, his mission for people, his ultimate plan of redemption for the earth, right? And it led Christ to his death, and he hung on the cross all the payments from, from, for sin, all the, all the, all the wrath for, for errors and wrongdoing that he did not commit was lavished out on him in its fullness. And when he died, Paul says, as we become a Christian, we can now look at the death of Christ and say, just as Christ died 
because of all this, the, the punishment of sin that we were due that was poured on his shoulders, now when you become a Christian, you also die to the sin that Christ died for. So you have experienced, if you're a Christian this morning, a death. You have died with Christ, right? But then Paul says this. In verse 1, he said, but then you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you died with Christ. In the middle here, it says, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. When Christ died, he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. Heaven is probably not this uh, immaterial, you know, white place where everybody's wearing bleached white robes and walking around on clouds, as movies kind of show us. Like, that's not probably what's going on. It's an actual physical place somewhere that Christ in his physical body rose to and is seated at the right hand of the Father today. And Paul says, you are so unified with Christ that even where he is today, a place where he is, is, is ruling perfectly, ruling as king, where there's no sin and death in that place, that place that one day will come and meet earth and make this earth a, um, a heaven itself, you are to set your minds on that you have died with Christ you also been raised with Christ, and here we are in this middle, right, section of life where Paul says, because you have died, now you are set your minds on um, things of not this earth but in heaven where Christ is today because you have been raised to new life. This raising of the life of the Christian happens when the Holy Spirit actually comes into your heart, your heart of stone, right, that is dead because of sin, but it makes alive. It comes into your heart and it, in a, in a spiritual sense, resurrects your heart from death to where you start desiring things of God. You start desiring um, to, and longing to have all of your life devoted to Christ and the spiritual resurrection happens. It's kind of like a seed. It's like a, a, a little glimpse of one day when we will be actually rose back from the dead in, 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 in perfect imperishable bodies just like Christ was risen from the dead. But we have a seed of that today. When the Holy Spirit makes new our heart and brings our heart back from the dead, we experience this spiritual resurrection, just like we also experience this spiritual kind of death to sin. Are you guys tracking with me? These are big theological concepts. He throws them all there. He throws everything out there in these three verses. But now he starts unpacking this and gets immensely practical, right? And he goes as far in these early verses. He says, if our life is hidden with Christ... Right, like you have become not yourself anymore. Like your your life as a Christian is so wrapped up in Christ that you you're actually like now behind this like smoke screen of Jesus. Like like you're you're gone. Your life is hidden, wrapped up in His completely and utterly. And He says in verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him. In glory, so that's that's that hope we have of what is to come when Christ appears. The, the rest of the New Testament calls this the, the the final salvation that we have. Right when Christ returns, and we are risen from the dead, and we when He appears, we will also appear with Him in glory. So that's kind of the whole story of the Christian. That's the whole story of when you become a Christian and, and to the end. Right when we are raised to newness of life with Christ, heaven and earth meet, and we're with Him there. And so this little space is what Paul is concerned about today, this little space of time. We are to be setting our minds on things above and not things of this earth. This, this time in between where we have died to sin, we experience this, 
this spiritual resurrection, theologically, uh, is called regeneration. The Holy Spirit makes alive our hearts. But we're still here on this earth, and sin still dwells here. And we know that the fullness of time has not quite yet come when he returns and restores all things. So what does this new life that we are raised into, how does it play itself out today? What does this look like? We're talking about some very, um, the very essence of Christianity here this morning. Um, he, he, he breaks down all these things in, in many, many uh, different moral kind of imperatives. Listen to this. In verses 5 through 11, he says this. Put to death, therefore, because you have died, right? Because you've been raised with Christ today. And we have a hope of being raised to an imperishable state, living with him forever and ever when he appears in glory one day. But today, put to death what is earthly in you, Right? Not have, you know, what is earthly, what is, what were the things that are not of God in you? Sexual immorality. These are, you're going to see junk drawer kind of terms, right? That cover so many other things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in awe. So the resurrection becomes something that is an, is an actual event that took place. It will be a future actual event that will happen for all people on this earth, whether you're raised to walk with Christ in heaven's new earth or you're raised to be sent to eternal damnation forever and ever. All people will be raised, says Scripture. But for the Christian today, we can look at the future resurrection and actually draw what we can say Christian ethics from the resurrection. And this, let me explain how, how Paul does this here. We have to understand, first off, where we came from. We have to really understand the life that we came from when you ter- first turned to Christ. And we also have to know where we are going. And those two paradigms informs our life today, right? We have to understand that, yes, the Spirit dwells in us. We have a new heart But there are still hurdles lurking inside of us. There's still a battle raging inside of us. These, this almost like um, you 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 ever feel like you're you know crazy sometimes. Like this voice is just saying, you know, indulge or whatever, and you're like, that's that would destroy me. Like I don't, I really don't want that. But where the heck is this voice? It's still there. Like, you know, I'm hoping you you understand what that is, right? So when Paul mentions these things, this is what he, if you pay attention to the things he mentioned, he's not just addressing like a list of go do or, or you know, don't do. I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, you know, where giving a, a laundry list of don't do items was like, yes, this is so good. I won't, if I don't do these things, then I'm good. All right, good. So I won't do these things. And other people would think I'm a, I'm a great Christian if I just don't do these things. Great, so what was the list? Okay, I'm not going to do that. I want other people to make sure they know that I'm not doing it, you know, and I won't do it. Um, but let's get past that kind of really shallow, religious, like just purely moral approach and really pay attention to what he's addressing. He's addressing um, motives, feelings, inclinations just after the pattern of Christ's teaching as he did when he was in his ministry, as he taught. 
He's addressing our dispositions. He's addressing many of the things that lie beneath the surface of actual actions, right? You can commit sexual immorality physically, sure, but if you're walking and you glance a lustful look at somebody, Jesus says, you just also committed sexual immorality. It's a, it's a motive in your heart that causes sin, right? That's a hard teaching from Scripture that we have, that, that Jesus says, with your very motives, you can cause yourself to sin, right? This is what Paul is addressing here. Our dispositions, our feelings, our inclinations, those things that lie beneath the surface, those things that most of the time only you are really aware of, right? And it's easy to put on the show on the outside as if we can be oppressed by your outward moral behavior, but Christ is so much more concerned for what's happening in your heart, right? And we'll see later what that does to those um, actions that come beneath or outside of the surface, right? So in verses 9 through 10, Paul kind of goes back to this imagery. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of, his, of its creator. This language is almost like one of clothing, right? He, he's trying to make you think of, you had this, this outfit. It was dirty. It was crummy. It was your previous life before Christ, but it was, you've, you've put that off. Like, you've taken that off, right? When Christ died, that was your death that you also died that stuff is gone but you have put on this new life which is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of his of its creator what Paul is harkening us back to is Genesis when our creation we were created in the image of God and knowing that sin has distorted the image what Paul is really saying is in Christ your very image of what it means to be a human being is being restored and renewed this new self that we're putting on Right? In the likeness of the resurrection, the likeness of the new life that we have received by the help of the Holy Spirit, we are being renewed back to what it means to be a human being. Amen. And we'll see exactly what that looks like as he continues to unpack this. Our day and age today, we are so confused of what it means to be a human being. Um, we, we think to be a human being is this, this, this fluid state where we can kind of choose what we hope or want or desire for us to be even crossing uh, all, all lines of, of, of gender. Say so we can choose the kind of humanity that we really want to be. And, and, and God is saying, actually, there, there was a complete and utter uh, uh, intention behind when I created you, right? And this is what we must, if we want to find life, it is to find what this image was. And when Christ was here, he, he embodied that image for us. And we'll see just the freedom that comes of that here in a moment. Um, a, a good image of, of this death that we die is um, marriage. Um, I have a few pictures of... So um, in a few weeks, we're celebrating 10 years of marriage. Um, yeah, there you go, right? 10 years. Um, I, I remember when we first got married, hearing people, I was been married for 10 years, thinking like, wow, that's a long time. And now we're hitting 10 years. And some of you are laughing. I got shoes older than that, you know, and I understand. Um, but... Ten years, it's, you know, it's a decade, it's a, it's a, it's a I don't know, a, a, a step, a, a good memorial, whatever you want to say. And when you commit yourself to marriage, in many ways, you are actually committing yourself to a death, and a, a good death. Come on now. You know me better than that. A very good death. 
that's funny. Um, I knew somebody would do that. I knew, I, you know, I knew somebody would do that. When, we, when you say your vows to your wife on your wedding day, what you're saying is, I'm committing myself to this marriage. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to give up any kind of uh, life that I would only live for myself. Any decisions that I make from this moment forward is for us, is for our family. I am losing permission to act on my own behalf. And I'm committing myself to, to live only for the sake of this family pointing us towards the glory of Christ, leading our family in that direction. I've lost permission to live for myself anymore. And when you become one flesh, your identity is wrapped up in that of your wife. And Scripture teaches us this. And Paul actually commands us, saying, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, husbands, you're supposed to be giving yourself up in that sacrificial way for the sake of your wife. And that is a complete, utter denial of yourself. And is that very death is what I'm referring to, is saying that you are saying, I'm giving all those things away and saying, for you, I will gladly lay down my life and to love and to serve you for the rest of my days. And that is what marriage is supposed to be. There's a death to self that happens with a healthy marriage. If you have had, ever had marital issues in this room, it is because more than likely you have indulged in yourself. You have said, you know what? I want to do something on my own behalf for once. I'm going to do it. And that never, ever goes well, as anybody here can testify, so I'm sure at one point you've done just like myself. This is a great way to understand the death involved that Paul is referring to, death to self, right? In our salvific terms, in our, in our Christian life, death to this world, right? What is the fruit of that? Paul, in his little kind of ADD, kind of throws this exciting kind of truth out there to say once we die to this world, once you, you're in the faith and you are a Christian and, and, and you give yourself over to Christ and he, he says in verse 11 a really beautiful truth. He says there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. All people in Christ then have risen to a different and a much higher level of, uh, of identification. There's no longer about race or socioeconomic status any longer. Being in Christ is the greatest great equalizer, and it has the power to bring people from all walks of life on this earth together on the same playing field before God. So what does this want, this new life, this new self look like? What does this resurrected life look like? We just looked at what it means to die to yourself, right? We talked about that. Marriage is a good analogy for that, to die to yourself. Now Paul moves on to putting on this resurrected life, putting on this new life. Verse 12 I'll read through this, through um, 16. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We don't have the time to literally look at every single word and every single thing mentioned in here, but I'm going to look at the junk drawer kind of approach once again, as Paul seems to be doing here. In verses 12 through 14, he lists actually eight specific things we are to put on in this new clothing we have in Christ. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving 
one another. He, then he puts in some calls and effects where he says, the peace of Christ, when it comes to you and is ruling inside of your heart, um, you, were, you were to live this out because you, because you were called to one body, the church, right? The peace of Christ inside of you affects those around you. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that lead to? It leads you to teach others, to admonish others with wisdom. It leads you to be singing songs and hymns with the church together in thanksgiving to God. So there's, if, you, if you pay attention to these things, there's a very common theme here. What, the stuff you die to is all about yourself. The stuff you're being raised to, you're putting on in this new life, the resurrected life, it is played out in your treatment of others. It looks like this. You die to yourself, and then you live for others. You're putting on a life where you lose all concern for yourself and gain only a concern for others. But again, what is the difference? You and I probably know people. Honestly, I mean, think about this. On the surface, it appears I know people who actually live this way. and they're not, They don't know Jesus. They don't know Christ, right? I know people who are, pretty, who are really selfless people who really seem to be concerned for others, and they're not even Christians. I'm kind of playing the devil's advocate a bit here, right? Is it possible to find this kind of selfless life that Paul just mentioned, where you're patient, kind, forgiving, loving, compassionate, merciful towards others without Christ? I think we all know people who kind of appear that way, but of course, the final few verses Paul was hinting at here um, shows us that um, it's, uh, for the Christian, it's so much more. Um, and this is the very essence, this is the very starting point of Christianity. All right, listen to what verse 17, where he goes with this. And this is where I'm, what I'm going to be closing with here soon. Verse 17 says this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, talk about, you know, a drunk drawer term. Like, whatever you do in word or deed, everything. Like, there's nothing else outside of that, right? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. It's your motivation for putting on this kind of life. It's for Jesus Christ. It's for his name. It's for his glory. That is our motivation. And that is what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions, all other ethical codes, all other ethical responses. That is the distinctiveness that comes so then what's interesting is you have somebody that looks like they're being compassionate, caring for others, but they don't, they don't have a love for Jesus. I can't question their motives. I don't know their motives, right? But if they don't know Christ, we can say at least on the surface, it's not going to be for the glory of, of Christ and for the sake of the gospel, right? But you have a Christian over here who's doing the same thing. On the surface, their actions look equivalent, right? But God is a, is a judger of hearts. He's concerned about the hearts. And so for us... As the church, your actions are important, but my starting level with you guys is your heart. Because that is where God is looking, that is where God is concerned about, and the motives is where Christianity lies. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul is aiming towards your heart. Right? He's aiming towards that level. He's saying when you're putting on all these things, it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. Give me thanks to God the Father through him. It's all by the help of the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, Jesus' resurrection indeed gives us a glimpse of what the future holds for God's people. It's, it's perfected glory, right? And the Spirit today helps us to live in such a way as this. And this is the resurrected life. 
Um, but when you find this life, as, as we look on, on the back end of our sermon here, this life, when you find it and you discover this by the grace of God, when you receive it from God as a gift, as this kind of life we're talking about, this, this new heart that you receive, um, it, it, is a, it is ultimately a gift from God. It's not something that you earned on your own. It's something that was received by faith. But even Paul, uh, the New Testament elsewhere says that the very faith you have to receive it, the faith is a gift. You were dead before. Dead people don't make decisions. They don't make, they don't respond on their own accord. They're dead. They're not breathing. They're, they're goners. But God touches us, brings us back to life, gives us the, the, the gift of faith and makes our heart alive to where we say, oh, you are my creator, God, and I, my sins are washed away and you give me new life and now I have life. And what the Bible teaches is this wonderful, amazing truth is that when you receive this new life, there's a true awakening within your soul. A light rises in the dawn in this kind of life, you will find all meaning and all purpose for your very existence. You will find out what it means to be truly human. You will get glimpses of that. And all of our imperfections and all of our sins, and we'll still make plenty of mistakes, but we will get a taste of what it means to be truly human when we are living for the glory of Jesus Christ and Him alone. As we are extending compassion and love and cares, we are fighting injustice as we saw at the beginning of this sermon. As we're doing those things for the glory of Christ to give this world a glimpse of the restoration He's bringing. As we're dying to ourselves and getting rid of anger and malice and greed and all those things. As we're dying to ourselves and bringing this new life home, we're finding life, true life, what it means to be truly human. And in closing, there's a great story that um, really, I think, shows this well. Um, many of you probably have heard of this book, um, Anna Karenina, uh, written by Leo Tolstoy. It, it kind of gives a great example of this, so I'll briefly share with you this story. Uh, it's primarily of two people. You have Anna and you have Levin. Right? So Anna was a woman who lived for the highs. She lived for the passions of life. She spent all of her time pursuing the excitements and all the rushes that she could find. She found motherhood boring, marriage to a bland husband a waste of time, and she found herself swept off her feet by a young, na- young man named Vronsky, leading her to adultery, divorce, and ultimately utter destruction. It led her to take, eventually, her own life as she realized she no longer had control even over her, herself. And for her, death was the only freedom that made any more sense to her. Now, Levin, on the other hand, was a noble man who had many, many imperfections. And he had few successes in life. He didn't have a whole lot of friends. He was somewhat intelligent, but also not very intelligent. The girl he ended up marrying first, when he first asked her to marry him, she said no and denied him. He lived this life that few understood. He struggled with meaning and purpose. He had chances to indulge himself, but sometimes often found restraints. He at times was pulled to the Christian message, feeling like it made sense out of the many struggles in his life, but still he found himself resistant to the message. As the story goes on and on and on and on and on and on, it wasn't until the climax of the story that Levin discovered the very key and the very thing that he had been searching for all along. And it was suddenly, all of his searching was revealed to him. After he was married... Uh, to Kitty, they had a son. They were outside one day on the spring morning. Um, a cloud began brewing. His wife and his son were underneath this birch tree. He was kind of far away from them. This cloud came upon him very quickly. Rain was pouring down. Thunder, lightning, a flash, you know, happens. He looks. The tree his wife and kid are under. 
was hit by lightning, the tree splits, falls. And the last thing he saw his family was right there. So what did Levin do? Right? All that he had in his life, his precious wife and her new son, were right there where the lightning hit. What did he do? He realized he could not do anything for what just happened. He was helpless. So what did he do? He prayed. Levin prayed. Now in this story, this was a big moment. This agnostic kind of atheist guy who kind of has some you know, Christian interest but kind of denied, he found himself praying out of desperation to God. He said, my God, my God, if only it's not on them. It turned out they were just fine and they were spared. But this for Levin made him realize that ultimately his life was not for himself anymore. He realized his heart was now so wrapped up in his family, he knew with all of his weaknesses that there was only so much control he had in this life. And if it were up to him, he would only make a mess of things. He needed to give himself over to God and to others if he were to actually find his life. This is what Levin says in closing in the book. He says, I'll go on getting angry at my coachman, one of his employees, right? I'll go on arguing, go on expressing my ideas inappropriately. There will still be a wall between the inmost shrine of my soul and other people, including my wife. I'll go on blaming her because of my own fears, and then I'll repent. Many of you hopefully can, you know, find identification with this. I'll go on understanding with reason, with my reason why I pray, uh, onto not understanding sometimes why I pray, but I'll still go on praying. But from now on, my life, my whole life, no matter what happens to me, every second of it is not only not meaningless as it was before, but it has the incontestable meaning of the goodness that I have the power to put into it. With all of his imperfections and struggles, in summary, what he said, with all of his doubts, he stumbled upon putting on a glimpse of this resurrected life. And he realized once he found his precious God, and realized that his life is to be spent for other people in light of his knowledge of God. In doing so, he found life. And we'll end with Matthew 10, verse 39. It says this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Listen to these words. Whoever finds his life will lose it, will die. They're going to experience a death and die to themselves. That is a loss of life. You will lose everything that you had before. You're going to die to that. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for the glory of Christ, to do all things for his name, giving thanks to God the Father through him, when we have compassion doing for, the, for Christ and for his glory, when we, when we do that for his sake, what does Jesus say? Then we will find life. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that we could take these things to heart. Lord, may um, this church find life, Lord. Would you restrain and keep us from just indulging in self, indulging in death and destruction? Lord, may we realize that just as you poured yourself out like a drink offering for others that led you to the cross, Lord, all the suffering and sorrow you experienced in this life, um, you did for the glory of your Father, for the sake of others. May we live that kind of resurrected life today. Would you have given us a new heart? Help us to uh, have compassion, be merciful people, all for others, for your glory. Holy Spirit, we beg and plead, fill us. We can't do this alone. We're imperfect people. We're still going to make mistakes. We need your help, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.